Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Malika Pritchett. Welcome, Malika. Thank you for having me, Ben. Happy to have you here. Uh, before we get started, I just want to share that I am producing and hosting this podcast on the territories of the Klamen, Homoko, Klehus, and Comox First Nations, uh, which uh, surround my island that I live on. And the island that I live on is called Sayayin in the Klamen language. Um, and the village I live in is called Isam in the Klamen language. And right now I don't have the translations with me, but essentially they both refer to sort of, they're kind of land references. Isam, I think, means end of the bay, which makes sense because uh, the, the sort of settler term is Gilly's Bay. So I live in a bay. And I believe Sayayin is sort of, sort of like an end of island or end of land, something like that. Something to sort of just to sort of, um, you know, represent the, the land mass of the island. Um, and it's called Texada Island, uh, named after a Spanish colonizer who, say, who who apparently just sailed past the island. He didn't actually even stop here, but somehow, somehow the ship went by and we're going to name it after him. Um, and, uh, you can look, I, th I think his name is actually, and I can see if we can find a link to it, but I think his last name is actually T, we spell it T-E-X-A-D-A, -A, but I think his name is T-E-J, um, A-D-A, -A, maybe Tejada or something like that. Um, and anyway, um, the, the common First Nation is kind of on the mainland where I would kind of commute to go get my groceries. Uh, and the other three First Nations are kind of on on Vancouver Island, which is sort of the bigger island west of me. But there's this website called um, uh, nativeland.ca, native, I think it's native-land.ca. Um, and I don't know, I know it's a .ca website, so that's Canadian, but I think it may deal with some American sites. So it essentially, you, know, you go to this website, and you can look up it's sort of it's sort of like a like a Google Maps type thing, and you can look up uh, you know where you live, and it'll show you all the indigenous First Nations that are in on the land. So it won't actually so it won't actually say so. I'm sort of Vancouver, sort of the biggest city here. You won't say Vancouver; it'll just have all of the the, the different in, in, individual indigenous First Nations. And when you look at that site, it's. Um, on, on our island, it seems like all of these in First Nations have little sections of it. Uh, I know Klaman definitely has specific lands here, and, and I think they have sort of the the biggest claim to the island um, at these days, and they're certainly the ones that are you know doing the most over here. Um, uh, I think primarily just because they can access it from their community, where um, the Vancouver Island folks don't have a direct route here, um, unless you know they're going in sort of solo boats, but the ocean gets a bit rocky these days, so I don't know if they're doing that too much anymore. Anyway, um, um, as I understand it, and I've been saying this sort of in every every territorial development, I probably should confirm it again somewhere, but I'm pretty sure that all four of those First Nations were 
we're one sort of nation, one community sort of thing before um, we kind of split them off. And and I think we all, a lot of folks know that sort of pre-colonizing, there were there were no borders, there were no lines. You know, it was all just land, and and so uh, I, these these in, these First Nations are part of a larger sort of. Um, uh, I don't know what you call it, group of First Nations called the Coast Coast Salish First Nations. And there's quite a few of those down in Washington and Oregon and and uh, and, and, and all the way up sort of um, uh, BC's coast into towards uh, kind of Alaska, the Yukon. Um, uh, so just a, a massive sort of um, 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 community. Um, and I was also saying... Uh, folks will know may, folks who are paying close attention and, and I've had a few guests or had a few uh, sort of uh, listeners actually acknowledge this so it, was, it was great that they're listening but um you know so I was talking to somebody the other day and said I'm, I'm really learning lots about land acknowledgements thanks mm -hmm. to you and I said oh, no, that's great um it's actually I, I learned recently in a workshop I went to by a guy named Len Pierre who owns a company called Len Pierre Consulting L-E-N and it's Pierre P-I E R E, um, and he's a charismatic uh, uh, young uh, indigenous guy that's been doing a lot of really cool kind of um, um, you know, sort of cultural safety, cultural humility. He's got a company, and he's been working with our company quite a bit to help us kind of um, um, in our process of truth and reconciliation. Um, and he's been putting on these sort of uh, lunch and learn webinars, kind of one, one a month. And he did one recently called Transformative Territorial Acknowledgements. It's amazing. I'm going to share it in the show notes. Um, really applies to sort of anyone who lives in any kind of community where there's there might be, you know, um, you know sort of Indigenous people still there and Indigenous lands, and that's pretty much everywhere. Um, and one one thing he talks about and um, 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 is um, kind of how and I have to go back and watch, look at it again, but I, I might be butchering this, but kind of how he likes to call them territorial acknowledgments versus land acknowledgments because we're not really acknowledging the land because the land is just, you know, the dirt um, um, uh, per se. Um, uh, but, but we're acknowledging their relationship to the land and, uh, and sort of that sort of two-way kind of connection there. I, I think, I think some might get a little offended by me just calling it the dirt. I think there's a sort of a, a deeper, there's still a deeper sort of, um, you know, um, connection and description of it, but, uh, it's, it, it's that relationship versus the actual sort of, you know, earth, rock and water that, uh, is really important. Um, so yeah, so I'm starting to call them territorial acknowledgements and learn something new every day about, about about those sorts of things. So I'm looking forward to kind of diving in. I've been doing a little bit of work uh, learning about the history of uh, the the common First Nation and found a, a series of newsletters that some anthropologists put together and uh, uh, that tells a lot of stories. So I'm starting to starting to read some of those, but um, I don't have any facts in front of me to share. So I'll save that for a future episode. Um, so today we're going to be talking about um, a bunch of different things. We're talking a little bit about some of Malika's research, uh, but I think 
more so just kind of kind of her passion and what 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 you kind of become known for i think in a lot of ways in more recent times i think yeah and that's sort of that's a whole other point i think but um in, in more recent times you've been kind of known uh, recognized for your work in kind of the area of social justice um and human rights and those sorts of things so we're going to be kind of talking about um you know behavior analysis somewhat you know but this just general sort of i think um you know research practices and whatnot and kind of the history the history of research and you know there's a we keep talking about reform in different areas and you know and trying to change what we're doing but you know i think especially with in light of some of the ridiculous things that are happening in in some places in the u.s right now around sort of you know essentially erasing history or not wanting to what not wanting to tell true histories um there's a lot of things I think people are in research need should know about research and kind of where it came from. There's a lot of people that read research and sort of, you know, make decisions on their life or in their practice based on research that should know kind of where that all came from and and uh, and should know whether, you know, you know, there's, you know, we, we often get taught kind of how to read research in our in our, you know, graduate programs. And that's great. But we don't get taught the history of research and we certainly don't get taught, you know, um, I don't, we don't get taught some of the things that I think are coming out more and more now around there's sort of components of research that aren't required by, there's sort of aspects of research, I say, that aren't required by journals to sort of be published that maybe should be, um, you know, and, uh, and and so it, it's not just a, an issue of sort of you know researchers themselves, but it's an issue of the systems that that researchers kind of work in. So it's going to be touching a lot of a lot of really kind of kind of cool things in there. I said initially in the beginning, you know, a second, you know, just a minute ago about you know that, that you're known for social justice, but you know, I it was interesting. I did a I did a I released a podcast today with. Um, um uh, uh and i've been doing i've been doing a lot around kind of in terms of black history month i've got a promotion going out right now with you know a bunch of all, all my black guests uh the, the ceus are free for folks right now just to kind of get the word out and i've been interviewing and, and and coincidentally i've been interviewing a lot of black guests this month it was not planned this way it just so happened that that they all that, that all the ones i reached out to wanted to meet in february um and uh uh, and so, you know, I've just been kind of building more and more on on kind of uh, that knowledge. And, and so yesterday's interview that that I, or today's interview that I published was with uh, Dr. Denise Ross Page, uh, Dr. Amoy Hugh Penny, Dr. Maya Hernandez and Dr. Margo Aweo. And they they were introducing themselves and talking about how long they've been in the field. Denise said she's been in the field for like over 30 years. Um, uh, Amoy was, you know. 26 27 years um you know and 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 i got got to thinking you know i hadn't heard of any of these people until 2020 you know um um uh you know i heard i've heard lots about lots of other people but i haven't heard of any of these folks and 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 i actually sort of again bias coming in thought they were all just brand new behavior analysts uh, coming onto the field not 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 denise ross so much because I think she's just she's she's got she's just got like a wide 
uh, breadth of sort of work that she's involved in that sort of hints that she's probably been doing this for a while. Uh, but still, I hadn't heard of her either, you know, before before the last few years. And, uh, you know, and it just really speaks to, I think, um, again, a lot of the problems in our field and a lot of the problems in our world that um, there are so many brilliant people doing really really cool work and, it's, and i think this is this is a part that i don't know people grasp i think i, I, I sometimes people wonder if people wonder why you know a lot of my guests you know are you know come from you know, kind of these more kind of marginalized populations and and it, it might even look from the outside like i'm just sort of picking and choosing solely based on sort of skin color uh for for someone who wouldn't listen to the episodes do any reading you know um and and I'm not, but but I kind of am because these folks that I'm picking are these people, and I don't know if it's I don't know if it's sort of the the you know the just the different kind of lives these folks have had to live, um, uh, you know the the world they've had to grow up in that just wasn't you know sort of recognizing them recognizing them as humans and and just sort of having just a sort of different sort of you know. I don't know what it is. It uh, uh, you know, uh, it's a strength for sure. Whatever it is, um, um, the stuff that yourself and and many of my guests are putting out is just so cool and so interesting. And I find the stuff that's you know, I don't that's not to say that you know, folks that you know are you know you know maybe are are, are white or white passing or whatever aren't putting out good work. But it's just so much other work that I had no idea existed and so many conversations that I had no idea you could have in the context of our field. Um, anyway, I just wanted to sort of explain that that thought I had at the beginning there, uh, because I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's much like sort of the idea that, uh, you know, Black history is just slavery and there was nothing before that, you know, um, and uh, um, or or indigenous history was just, you know, residential schools and there was nothing before that or, 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 you know, and, and, and there's just, there's just so much rich information out there. It's so much rich information and knowledge and stories and, and just the way, you know, some of these, you know, um, um, uh, you know, groups, um, um, just look at the world, the world worldview. That's a term I've been hearing a lot more lately. Worldview. I have an indigenous college colleague that often talks about in her practice. She talks. She right in her bio on her website. She's a BCBA, but she talks about how she does her work from an indigenous worldview. And I love that whole worldview thing because you know we need more worldviews. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Anyway. Um, I, I, so I'm just I, like, I would never have talked about social justice and those sorts of things. And I think maybe that's because the folks that we were talking to beforehand, you know, you know, weren't having issues because they're, you know, they're privileged and they're, and they're, and they're, you know, they don't need social justice because they've got sort of access to everything and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. But I don't, I don't know what it is, but I don't want to, I don't want to ramble too much here, but um, it's just, uh, it just, it just makes me think and, 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 and I continue to have, I had a great conversation this morning with an interview I'm going to be doing in, in the March with, um, uh, two behavior analysts, one from Nigeria and one from Ghana. And, and she, one of them was talking about how, you know, she was up until recently, she thought she was the only behavior analyst in Nigeria. 
uh, because she just had just, she just had no idea that there were people floating around. And talking about sort of the very beginnings of behavior analysis, they're, they're in a place where, you know, ha half the population, you know, sort of in sort of the autism context, half the folks that have, you know, kids with autistic kids don't even know that they, their kids are autistic, don't know what autism is. Um, don't know what ABA is, um, uh, you know, still are using sort of treatments or, you know, kind of spiritual treatments or, you know, other things that are expecting sort of like a pill to solve all their problems and, 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 and those sorts of things. And just, you know, most of the behavior analysts on our neck of the woods didn't have, didn't have to deal, didn't have to deal with any of this stuff, you know, um, and didn't have, didn't have to have that perspective, and it's just such a there's just so many cool perspectives. So I'm just uh, I just I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is I'm just really grateful to to be able to have this podcast and to be able to you know have you know really cool guests like yourself that uh, you know just have a different perspective and they're willing to share it and and it's just it just it's enriching my life and my mind and and I hope other people's as well. I think it is Ben, and I think that. Uh... You know, people say, I could just talk to you for hours and mm. they don't really mean it, <laughs> but you and I have actually done it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's great. And I, I'm a, I'm now a loyal listener. And when you reached out to me, I had heard about your podcast, but I hadn't, I'm, I'm not a podcast type of person, right? Mm. Like if I'm going to put my AirPods in, I'm going to listen to music, music like moves me through my day, my workouts, <laughs> everything that I, that I do. I, I tend to, I have a soundtrack to my life, right. And yeah. I make different playlists, but yeah. your podcast, um, in addition to a few others that I've been turned on to have really been helpful for me to hear diverse perspectives, especially because a lot of times when we do have the luxury and the opportunity to go to conferences, folks are so busy. Some people yep. aren't at certain conferences. It's hard to catch up with different people. So I really do appreciate one of the gifts of the pandemic being that people are more likely to connect virtually and more likely mm -hmm. to share ideas. And mm -hmm. there just is a better dissemination process for like you said, a bunch of smart folks across the world that are doing yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Well, as always, I like to sort of start with a bit of the the, the origin story of my guests. Um, um, one of these days, I'm going to have a guest on twice, and maybe I won't ask this question in the beginning, but uh, so until we get there, we'll keep going. So, curious, uh, kind of how you how you found ABA and kind of how you got in the field, but also, you know. Um, how you got to sort of this sort of social justice focus? Gosh, that is a that is a long windy road. I'm going to try and I like the long words. <laughs> I'm going to try and synthesize this because I I bet it would sound a bit of a mess if you if you follow this trajectory. So I think the biggest thing is I've always been naturally curious in the sense of from childhood, I'd always been interested in lots of different things. And I mm. it was very inquisitive and had lots of questions. And from as early as I can remember, which is probably like four or five years old, my parents probably just grew tired of answering all of Malika's questions. I think it, <laughs> it was just exhausting. <laughs> and so what they did was they put a bookshelf, there's a bookshelf that was in our house, built-in bookshelves, really pretty, mm. and uh, the long haul of bookshelves, and on the very bottom row was 
my height and they were always filled with books. So I had a mini library from as long as I can remember Mm. because my parents were just probably exhausted and Mm. I was probably asking questions they didn't know the answer to. Mm. So my dad just used to say, I don't know, look it up. And, Mm. um, that has always been the way that I was reared. Do you know, I don't know, look it up and question Mm. asking was not punished necessarily, but redirected and, um, And to this day, I love bookshelves and libraries and Mm. the more books I can have, it's becoming a problem, (laughs) especially with, you know, them arriving at your doorstep so easily. But nonetheless, um, I I say that to say I've always been very curious and I've always been interested in how things worked. And so I was just a natural researcher and scientist as a young one Mm. and always was very interested in science and went to... I grew up in North Texas, in Mm. Allen, Texas specifically, and Mm. um, always had access, such a privileged educational opportunity, right? Always had access to a lot of smart people, a Mm. lot of resources. My dad was in the tech field. So the minute anything new technological came out, I had it in my home before Mm. anybody else. I was researching on the internet. I was on AOL before Mm. anybody else. I had the fastest internet connection in my neighborhood. So I, I've always had information at my fingertips by virtue of the way that my family arranged my environment. And I decided really early on that I was going to be a scientist. And I decided that I wanted to, my family, a portion of my family, my grandmother, aunts and uncles lived in San Diego, California. And I decided in high school, I was going to be a marine biologist. I wanted mm. out of Texas, nothing more to do with Texas. I was out of there. and got accepted to San Diego State University and was very proud of myself. I do have these points in my life where I get too proud of myself and not humble enough. And age mm. 17 was <laughs> a very different malike. <laughs> um, Cause I was, I was smart and I had privilege and I had access to a lot of great education and I was going to leave Texas and I was really excited for myself. So I didn't really care about my grades second half of the semester. I got out to San Diego State University to study marine biology. I put a down payment down for my apartment and was just really proud of myself Mm. and went to go enroll in classes in the administrative person said, your, your provisional admin admission to the university has been revoked you cannot come here. What? You cannot register for classes. Well, and this is a cautionary tale for anybody that gets a provisional admission to any sort of college or university around the world, if they're still doing them. I haven't really kept up with the times, but the thought process was for San Diego State University, we want to be sure that California residents get priority access to our university. And if you come Mm. from out of state and your GPA falls below the GPA that you had when you were admitted Mm. to the university after your last semester of your senior year of high school, then we'll revoke your admission and we'll give it to another person. So my admission probably went to a California resident that perhaps was on a waiting list or something like that. So my first, my first entry and my first step with college education or higher education was horrific. And I came back to my very small town. There's only one high school in my town. And I had to answer 
the question to every person I saw, mm. I'm not exaggerating. I thought you were going to school in California. And I literally had to just retell this story uh. over and over and over again. Cause I'm, I'm an honest person. I'm yeah. transparent. I was embarrassed, but it, it, yeah. it was what it was. Um, but that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I went, ended up enrolling at the very last minute at my local community college walked through the doors of community college with a pretty big chip on my shoulder. I was pretty mm. annoyed with myself, my circumstances. How am I going to be a marine biologist in Texas? Like <laughs> <laughs> these are the problems of a seven or 18 year old at the time. Right. Um, but I found some of the best professors I've ever to this day, ever mm. encountered in community college wow. and got my associate's degree in science and loved community college so much and loved my professors so much that the the advisors were like, okay, you're done. Like you have an associate's degree. You need to leave. <laughs> you need, like you're going to get a bachelor's degree. Right. And I'm like, yeah, for sure. sure. Um, they were like, okay, so you've got to leave. This institution doesn't offer that. So I, I kind of got kicked out in a different way of, of, uh, community college. But while I was there, I ran into some amazing professors. And one of them is my friend to this day and mentor. And he was a history professor. Mm. And I went to office hours one day. Office hours was a really interesting thing to me. And I went to office hours one day and I said, listen, I really love community college and I love college and I love learning. Like, this is really my jam. I could do this for a very long time. I love going to school. And he was like, well, you could be a professor and then you just do this every day. And I hounded him in his office hours. And I was like, well, what do you do? Mm. Well, I come and I prepare my lesson and then you see me teach and then I grade and then I sit here for office hours. And, and I was like, and this is your career. Like you do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so long story short, at age like 18, 19, my freshman year in undergrad, I decided I was going to be a college professor or at least wow. I was going to get a PhD. That was just that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I had, I had figured that out. And, um, through an interesting turn of events while I was at community college, I made a good friend that her, she was able to take American sign language in high school. Mm. And she taught me some sign language over the summer and I got really excited about it. And she told me that I was really good at it. She was like, you're picking up this language really quickly. It took me a couple years to learn everything that you know so far. I think you should take some classes at your community college. And that was just another reason to stay at community college for another year. So I got a certificate in, um, I, I believe the certificate was in something related to American sign language, probably American sign language certificate. I have to go back yeah. and look. And I became an interpreter. Mm. So I started paying for college as an interpreter and was able to not have to take student loans out at the undergraduate level. I was able to just work, interpret. It paid really well. I met a lot of really cool people, went to a lot of different environments as an interpreter. And then my advisors and my mentors at community college were like, well, what are you going to do for your bachelor's degree? Mm. And I was like, well, maybe I'll take sign language and science and mush them together. Mm. And they were like, well, I don't know how you do that, but there's a school down the road but it was about an hour away called Texas Women's University. And they have mm. a deaf education program and mm. a speech language pathology program. That sounds like what an audiology program. That sounds like what you're, what you're going for. Mm. And so that's what I did. So I went and I got finished my bachelor's degree in communication sciences and disorders. And I was pretty convinced I was going to 
go into deaf education mm. and I was probably going to leave the science behind, which yep. did not make me very happy. And I also didn't feel very prepared. I did some student teaching opportunities in classrooms where there were children that were deaf or hard of hearing. And I saw mm. a lot of challenging behaviors in those classroom settings. Mm. For obvious reasons, right? Speaking to a group of behavior analysts, they're like, well, yeah. But for <laughs> me, at the time, I had just finished my bachelor's degree and I knew that I was wholly unprepared and really not very motivated to go into a master's degree in deaf education without understanding why people are doing the things that they're doing. I thought mm. there was something really critical that was missing. Yes. Um, I could teach language or, or maybe American Sign Language all day, but... Um, you know, it, it was more complicated and I knew that. So I had another crisis, right? So my second crisis was, I, I'm in this education thing for the long haul, but I know I need to make pit stops along the way and gain some practical experience. And so, mm. um, so my next kind of crossroads, I went to, I went to a, I went to a barbecue. It was a barbecue I was, you know, crying in my beer in the backyard about, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And mm. uh, a friend of a friend walked up to me named Donnie Staff. And um, Donnie came over and he was like, hey, listen, I'm at the University of North Texas, which is literally down the street from Texas Women's, you know, Texas Women's mm. University. It's in Denton, Texas. Both of those universities are. I'm down the street at UNT. I'm studying behavior analysis. It's a master's program. You don't have to move out of Denton. You don't have to go anywhere. Like, mm. are you interested? And that was all the pitch that I needed. He explained to me what behavior analysis was. He explained all of the different avenues that I could study, which is, it feels infinite sometimes with the science of behavior, all the mm. things you can study and walked into the department at UNT and Walked around, saw students doing really cool stuff. I saw data. I saw motivated learning. I saw a place where scientists could come and flourish and, and ask really important questions. And I applied to the University of North Texas to, to study behavior analysis. And hmm. it was the only school I applied to. I had no idea if I was going to get in. For all intents and purposes, I don't know why they admitted me. I didn't have any background in behavior analysis, mm. perhaps my background in communication sciences and disorders. And, um, I'd worked hard. I had good letters of recommendation was a good reason for them to let me in. Um, and the cohorts are very small at UNT at the master's level. They're about 20 students. So I was mm. one of, I think probably about 20, if I'm not mistaken. And then that's literally how I stumbled in to behavior analysis. What I didn't know I stumbled into is one of the best behavior analytic programs in the world. And that, so, so I guess the moral of the story is it's okay to have crises and have no idea what to do in life and cry in your beer in a backyard. Cause you might <laughs> run into somebody <laughs> who changes your trajectory really quickly. So I'm forever grateful for Donnie for just at least being human enough to have a conversation with a girl that was like, I don't know what to do with my life. <laughs> right on. Did, did, uh, did the, that's awesome. That's an yeah. awesome story. Did, uh, did you do anything more with sort of the, 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 the deaf piece after that? Or? So the deaf community has always found me throughout my career, right? Mm. There's always a, 
there's always a client in need that uses sign language. There's, it's a very specific specialty. So um, I've continued to be of service. My skills are not nearly the skills as, as they were, as far as being an interpreter was concerned and I'm not no longer certified, but Mm. um, I continue to use my sign language skills and they haven't, I'm not too rusty. And what I do do is I do spend a lot of time making sure that um, I access the deaf community through YouTube videos and and different social media platforms just so I can hear what they're saying and mm. make sure I still understand. But that is something that I've been reflecting on pretty heavily that I will probably re-engage with the deaf community because um, it was a lot of fun. I just becoming a behavior analyst is pretty exhausting. So I took a little bit of a turn. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I had a, I I did an interview a month or so ago with, um, um, Dr. Siobhan Sutter. Do you know that name? No. She's a BCBAD at, I think it's university of Nevada, Reno. Ah. And she coordinates a, uh, Deaf blind education program. Wow. Yeah. Which was super cool. Really fascinating. And, uh, you know, and I haven't heard of a lot of behavior analysts sort of working in, in, uh, you know, in the deaf community. I know there's, there's a young woman right now that's, she's a BCBA. I think her name is Jackie. And I don't, I might butcher this last name. I think it's German. I think it's Wunderlich. Uh, W-U-N-D-E-R-L-I-C-H, I think is her, her last name. And she's a, a deaf BCBA. And she's been doing, and she's got, she's on Instagram. You got to find out what her, what her handle is. I'll put in the show notes. But she's, uh, she's just doing a lot of really cool dissemination around, uh, you know, working with the deaf and whatnot. Um and uh, I do want to, at some point, try to figure out if I can, you know, uh, if I can get an interpreter and bring her on the podcast at some point. But um, uh, that's been neat. And, and then I had a colleague that I just, that was one of my grad school instructors, and she was a deaf educator, BCBA, worked in school for the deaf. But it was, it didn't seem like it's a, it's a, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of folks doing that in our field. I don't, I, have, I, do you know, or have you noticed? Or no, and yeah. maybe, maybe that will be a good opportunity point for me also to reengage and gather gather folks that are doing similar work or interested in similar work because those fields are very close. And um, mm-hmm. and 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 the reason why I scuttled away from being uh, getting a master's degree in deaf education was because there were so many challenging behaviors in the classroom setting that I didn't know what to do with and mm-hmm. needed to know more about before I could be of any service to anybody. And so the, that overlap seems very logical. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, uh, well, a lot. there's, there's, there's definitely several sort of developmental disabilities, genetic syndromes or whatever that, you know, you know, uh, where the challenge behavior presents similar to what you might see with, you know, um, uh, you know, autistic folks and that sort of thing. Uh, but deafness is often a component of those syndromes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, often I think folks are, you know, these folks might not be sort of 
and because of their disability, and this, this, I mean, I, I know this is the point of today's conversation, but uh, you know, because of their disability, you know, I don't, I don't even, I don't even know what, I don't, I don't know if it, you'd call it sort of deaf ableism. I don't even know what the term would be, but because of their disabilities, these folks aren't part of the deaf community, right? Yes. Um, and I don't think it's not. I don't think it's that they're not welcome. So I don't think it's. I don't think. I don't think that's fair to call it the, the deaf ableism thing. I think the deaf community would, would welcome these folks with open arms. They seem to be pretty, you know. Inc- you know, if you're deaf, they're inclusive. You know, sort of thing. They, they don't. They don't have a lot of. They don't have a lot of strict requirements, as far as I understand. My wife, uh, kind of. My wife has a similar kind of track as you. She did a bachelor's degree in communications and and uh, became a deaf did the deaf interpreter course as well she never actually became an interpreter but she did some interpreting sort of inner work with uh, some clients and whatnot uh, and uh, so she I've learned a little bit about sort of the deaf community from her but um, but yeah point being that there's there, there there are these these sort of pockets of of sort of of deaf people that you know you know um would probably really benefit from accessing the deaf community and having those kinds of supports, but they don't. And so they end up sort of, they end up with, you know, hearing staff and hearing consultants and hearing professionals who, and and then they get labeled as hearing impaired versus deaf. And there's that, all those, those conversations as well. But I think there's just a lot of folks that don't know what to do when, you know, there's the, the when, when there's no hearing. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's okay to not know what you're doing, mm. but it's also not okay to just trudge forward, assuming that you're doing the best that you, that you can do in that moment. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. people's lives are way too important for me to just trudge ahead and, and, and hope that I'm doing the best. Do you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I'm actually, as you, as you heard from my stories, I'm more likely to at any space and time of confrontation or me feeling like I don't have the skills to do something or whatever it may be in life. Mm. I'm, I am way more likely to turn around the other way. I'm very fine with U-turns in life, mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, that, that would be, that would be really cool to re-engage with the deaf community now that I have a little bit more time and mm. <laughs> um, see what they've been up to. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, uh, you kind of you answered part one of my question, which was kind of how you got into the field of ABA. Uh-huh. Uh, part two was how did you become so interested in social justice? There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. Hey everybody, if you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. Uh, the first secret word is justice. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I I think that 
Well, I know that. I know that that also has to do with how I was raised. And my my grandparents worked in the United Nations. They worked mm. in different aspects of the United Nations. My grandfather represented the country of Sudan mm. and he was an economist. His whole interest was in what he was tasked with doing for the country of Sudan before it was before the civil war and before South Sudan was a separate country. Mm. Um, he was tasked with removing British rule from the Sudan required as it does with any country where the colonizers remove themselves rule wise and infrastructure wise from a country is to ensure that the country can sustain itself. And so his role with the UN was to make sure that the economy of the Sudan was self-sustainable once the British rule had transitioned. Mm. So, wow. Right. Big job. Smart dude. (laughs) Um, And he got his, he, he's from Sudan. He's from Khartoum and got his PhD at Oxford university and um, just kind of lived, lived a very interesting life. I never had the opportunity to meet him. So I just have the stories from my mother and I have the pictures around our home that she was sure to make sure that, you know, we had a visual representation of my grandfather Mm. and then my, and these are my maternal grandparents that I'm referring to now. Mm. My maternal grandmother is from Scotland and her link with the United Nations is she was trained as a physician, as an OBGYN. And she joined the United Nations to serve Northeast Africa. She was all over Northeast Africa. And the thought process was that she wanted to be sure that reproductive rights were upheld and Mm. that women specifically had access to birth control so that they weren't in these family structures where they were just continuing to have children without any access to, to birth control. So that's what my grandmother did. And so through the United Nations, my grandfather from the Sudan met my grandmother from Scotland. Uh. They married at a time. Can you imagine Um, they married at a time where a black man and a white woman getting married was just almost, almost unheard of. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if luckily or not, because the UK has its own tenuous history with, with race and, and, uh, race relations and things like that. But, um, all of that to say, I, I'm a, my mother met my father in Saudi Arabia and immigrated to the United States in the early eighties, right before I was born. So I'm not raised by, I'm raised, I'm the daughter of an immigrant and the understand on top of that, I'm the granddaughter of the United nations. So Mm -hmm. being interested in human rights and social justice was not an option. It was a conversation at the dinner table all the Mm. time. It was, it was just kind of who I was where I had a very difficult time was as a teenager, once you transition out of childhood and you go into becoming a teenager and a young adult, you realize that all the adults around you really don't know what they're doing. And sometimes they do really horrific things. That was a really difficult point in my life. I remember being very, very sad. And I I would venture to say, looking back, I was probably clinically depressed at age like Mm. 15, 16. Once I started to realize how 
I mean, I'm, I'm more mature in thinking about things differently, but at the time I would have said, how awful people can be to other people. That was mm. horrific to me. <laughs> most, mm. I don't think most teenagers have that. Most teenagers, especially now being a mother and raising them are, are going through a lot emotionally, but I was going through a lot emotionally because of how horrific people could be to other people of other races, mm. of other ethnicities, of other religions. That was really, di- that was really difficult for me. Mm. Um, so I guess I guess a lot of it is why I'm interested in science and why I'm interested in human rights and, and justice with regard to humans is probably just because of the environment I was raised in, which doesn't sound very exciting. It is what it is, right? As behavior analysts, but um, I've never really had an option. I've never, not option. I've just never really not cared about those things and it's just progressed to this day. I don't know how having grandparents with that story can be anything but exciting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, it's 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 like your your story is like straight out of a movie. Um, mm. it'd be a good movie too. Well, if there's a way I can get a, <laughs> a little bit of money for my kids to go to college and. <laughs> Their I mean, grandkids, I'd, I'd love to hear the story about your grandparents, sort of like in full, you know, full the the full like from their youth and you know all that kind of thing. Because I imagine, you know, they each have a, an amazing story of kind of how they how you get to the UN, right? I mean, alone is is um, has got to be a you know pretty fantastic. Did they get where where did they get married? That's a really good question. I. I'm going to have to ask my mother that question for the majority of my remembering, they spent a majority of their time in Nairobi. Mm. So, but maybe that that's where my parents got married, my father and mother, maybe that I'm mixing those two. And when are we talking? I'm I'm, I'm not very good with, with dates for when you say grandparents. I mean, my grandparents were like, my, my, my grandfather was born in 1903. So, I mean, I think, I think, I think you're talking a bit later than that. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little younger than you. My mm. grandfather was, my grandfather wrote his dissertation in 1949. Okay. And my mom was, is the oldest of the, of just two children. Mm. And she was born in 56. Mm. So let's just say somewhere in the early 1950s. Mm. That makes Good sense. Question. So your grandparents are probably around the same age as would be around the same age maybe as my parents uh, yeah so but uh yeah just just for the whole you know um black man and a white woman marrying and and where and when that was happening you know it, it obviously if they didn't get married in in um you know in in the u.s which probably no. wouldn't have happened um or if it did it would have been problematic to say the least my my grandmother was I, I knew my grandmother throughout my life. So my grandfather mm. passed away before I was born, but I knew my grandmother oh, throughout okay. my life. And Great. by virtue of perhaps being perhaps being Scottish as a portion of it, perhaps working through the United Nations and having a humanitarian worldview as another part of it, mm. perhaps being a physician that championed for women's rights and reproductive rights was another part of it. But um 
her entire side of the family from the way my mother tells the story was horrific towards my grandfather and also my mother and uncle who was this children of this union, right? Mm. These biracial children of this union. Mm. And they completely cut her off from family communications, mm. but she, she couldn't care less. Like there's a story mm. that mm. the country of Scotland at one point in time was threatening her, her passport. And she told him to have it, like threw it at him. Like mm. she, did, <laughs> she just was this woman who really didn't have any problems with nor tolerance with people being unjust right mm. like if you don't want to if you don't want to be around my children and you don't want to respect the fact that i'm married to a black man then you have your family and so i have no contact with that scottish side of my family but mm. one of these days i am very interested in genealogy one of these days mm. i'll do the work of tracing these yeah. folks back because it was a it was a generational mm -hmm. issue that i I hope doesn't stand to this day, but who knows? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm still really interested in this origin story. Normally I move on to the main topics by now, but um, okay. this is just really fascinating. Um, well, first question is obviously your grandparents, but were your parents also interested in kind of social justice? I mean, I mean, obviously they're, I mean, I know they're, they're immigrants, but that's, yeah, so my mom's a my mom is an immigrant. She because my parents were my grandparents were in the United Nations, they traveled a lot. That mm. is one of the downfalls is you have children, but you travel a lot. So she grew up in boarding schools in England, which again is another very privileged type of existence, right? And you have to be very wealthy to go to boarding schools, and then you are around very wealthy uh other you know peers and my my parents in the united nations my parents you know mm -hmm. yeah, on yeah. and on so that was her kind of purview but she was born in the sudan so was not a citizen of the uk she was she could not stay in england mm. after she had graduated from school went back to the sudan decided this isn't the life for me and decided to become a flight attendant for saudi arabian airlines mm. And so she was flying around the world for Saudi Arabian Airlines. And my dad, this is a whole nother side of the story, right? My father is from just outside of Chicago, Illinois, in a, from a town called Waukegan. Mm. And he joined the military, joined the army. He served in Vietnam. He ended up in Saudi Arabia. And my parents met at a party in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, because they just had mutual friends. Mm. And she was really excited to meet these American guys that were in the military. Mm. And they had a whirlwind type of romance, six months worth of romance. They married in Kenya. Mm. My dad ended up getting a job in Dallas, Texas, and wow. brought my mom with him. And mm. that's that's the story they were married all the way up until my dad passed away a couple of years ago. So mm. my brother and I being in growing up in a suburb of Dallas, Texas is really not very romantic compared to, <laughs> all of our, to compared to our family members. I don't think my brother resents it, but I'm a little salty. Like I could be uh -huh. anywhere in the world and I'm in 
I mean, I love, I love Texas. I still live here to this day, but it was like, man, you guys have been all over the world and, mm. and here I am. But now I forgot your question, Ben. Did I answer? No, you answered it. So <laughs> it definitely, you know, I mean, the, the foundations for social justice are there, but yet still your academic career was going towards sort of deaf and hard of hearing. It wasn't even, and then eventually, you know, into behavior analysis. So Mm-hmm. Where does the social justice thing, you know, now become, you know, part of your work? Suddenly, sure. You know? So at the University of North Texas, I had the really, really immense pleasure and luxury in a lot of respects to at, at UNT, there was several faculty members that were all interested in all aspects of behavior analysis. Mm. So I spent a considerable amount of my time learning from each one of the professors throughout classes and through joining different labs and um, gaining lots of life experiences as a student, as a master's degree student. So understanding what functional analyses were, understanding what functional behavior assessments were, understanding what it meant to work with Um, adolescents and adults diagnosed with intellectual and developmental disabilities, understanding what early intensive behavioral intervention was and working in an autism clinic and, um, you know, hearing for the first word, for the first time, what a, what discrete trial training was and naturalistic Mm. teaching and incidental teaching. So anyway, on and on and on working in schools, I got a lot of different experiences because the faculty there were so diverse and had Mm. so many wonderful and exciting areas of interest. And so I decided to, at my master's degree level, I decided to get my master's degree with Dr. Shala Lai Rosales, uh-huh. who not only has expertise in early intensive behavioral interventions, but also has a very distinct expertise in understanding the family context and the family mm-hmm. ecology and how mm-hmm. culture impacts services. Mm-hmm. So One of the things that we did when we were at the University of North Texas is we had to do lots of different labs and practicums as every up and coming behavior analyst does um, who's interested in becoming a scientist practitioner and certified as a BCBA. And so one of our sites that I worked at was a clinic for children with autism. But the mission of the clinic was very purposeful. And Dr. Shalalai Rosales and Jesus Rosales Ruiz led the the clinic um, development and mission. And the mission was a very particular mission in that anybody could be served in that clinic, regardless of their ability to pay, regardless mm. of their, um, you know, um, different barriers potentially that most of the time, children with autism can't access services because of disparities, right? Mm, Because mm. of social justice issues, because Mm. of, you know, perhaps English not being the native language of the household, not being savvy enough with the healthcare system, immigrant status, level of income in the home, number of Mm. children in the home that are diagnosed with autism, for example. So what that lab did and what that clinic did is it said, yes, we're going to provide optimal services and we're going to be sure that all of these children receive early intensive behavioral interventions um, or applied behavior analytic services, depending on what their needs were. And 
we're going to ensure that this is done for the entire community in the North Texas area, regardless of these barriers that exist um, in our society. And so understanding disparities was that that was my first introduction into understanding disparities and Mm. understanding what it meant to create a clinic that sought to eliminate those disparities. Mm. So that, I think that that's probably where, well, I know that that's where my interest in reducing and eliminating disparities and increasing access to services for children with autism or people period who need access to any sort of, Mm. of healthcare really took off. So, so I spent my time in my master's degree with Dr. Eli Rosales addressing that issue and um, conducting a program evaluation of whether or not the clinic had actually met that mission. Mm. So I think, I think that's, probably where all of the all of the magic combined at that point <laughs> gotcha gotcha no it makes sense it's, seeds were planted totally so what um i remember, I remember when you when, when i first reached out to you you said i, I want to talk about human rights i was like oh, sure okay sounds cool <laughs> um uh, right. yeah i haven't talked about that yet like i said Guests want to talk about cool things. Um, so where does where does sort of human rights fit into all this? Are you talking about sort of, you know, ensuring, you know, sort of like human rights within behavior analysis or how behavior analysis can, you know, help with human rights in the world? What what's sort of the 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 the, the focus, kind of the goal here? So the focus is human rights from the perspective of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Mm. And this Declaration of Human Rights, of course, came out of post-World War II travesties with regard to Nazi Germany and the the treatment of Jewish persons in in throughout the course of that of that war, but the thought process was, which is probably really radical at the time, right? I think it was 1948. Mm. The UN General Assembly gets together and all of these people from across the world agree that by virtue of being human, you inherently are entitled to certain rights. It has mm. nothing to do with your your race, your sex, your nationality, your ethnicity. And they go on and on, right? The language mm. that you speak, the religion, which is a huge that's just a, that's a huge, huge undertaking, number one, for the United Nations to create this Declaration of Human Rights. And number two, such an undertaking in our world and so easy to just watch the news and realize that most of the perils, if not all of the perils in our world with regard to human life is because there's a violation of their rights and a violation mm. of their inherent dignity to these uh, and entitlement to these rights just by virtue of being human and alive. Mm. And, and so that's, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about human rights. Mm. And so thinking about, uh, you know that 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 the the paper that you wrote. Uh, we have a couple of papers you wrote. The, the, you know the, the specifically there's a you know a book chapter. Um, 
yeah i don't what's the actual book <laughs> that the actual book so the book chapter is i knew you were going to ask that but... <laughs> i got the chapter here but i don't know what book it is no the, okay the actual i got it the actual book is research ethics and behavior analysis mm. and it's research ethics and behavior analysis from laboratory to clinic and classroom mm. so brand new textbook first of its kind to talk about research ethics specifically so there's been the Bailey and Birch text that I'm teaching out of this semester, and it's ethics for behavior analysts, but that book is more designed for practitioners working mm. in clinical settings. Yeah. And this textbook for research ethics helps behavior analysts across domains, uh, again, from laboratory to clinic and classroom, so across domains, but it's edited by David Cox and Noor Saeed and Matthew Broadhead and Shane, mm. Sean Quigley. Mm. so um highly recommend that folks get their hands on that textbook it's actually really exciting so so the chapter we were invited to write in that textbook was a historical overview of research ethics so we get Mm. to open they when they when you go to write these book chapters they don't tell you the editors don't tell you or they haven't told me in in the chapters that I've been able to contribute to what chapter are we going to be? You know what yeah, I mean? Like, so where are we going to be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we just go to writing and we're, you know, crying tears of happiness and joy, trying to get through the writing process. Mm. And we end up being chapter one, which is so cool. Really cool. But, um, it opens with just a human rights history of research ethics, specifically in behavior analysis. Mm. But the other paper that you're talking about with regard to social justice is it was published in behavior analysis and practice in that special mm-hmm. issue that right. uh, uh, Denisha Jingles was the guest editor on. Yes. And that, and, and I, I believe Dr. Jonathan Tarbox was the, I think he was the editor at the time. I think I you're right. So bad. I think you're right. Sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I, my memory is, is not great some days, but um yeah, so Denisha Jingles is the guest editor, and that paper is about social justice, kind of. Like, it, it actually, when we wrote that manuscript, my co-authors and I, my co-authors are Dr. Eli Rosales, Rick Cruz, and Shion, and my co-authors were my doctoral dissertation committee. Yeah. So this manuscript was based off of a dissertation that I had already had going in the works Mm. before the horrific and very public and often repeated murder of George Floyd was Mm. part of something that we were seeing on our devices and our televisions. Mm -hmm. We had already been doing this work and working really hard in a social justice lab at the University of North Texas, where we were interrogating these social issues and what it meant to be a behavior analyst in this context of this world that we're living Mm. in, which is an ongoing exploration that never really ends. But my interest was in what it meant to be an applied science. That's what Mm. I sought out to become very interested in and to understand a lot of times, especially when people first enter the field or they're first learning about behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis in particular, you say, what's applied behavior analysis? Well, it's the science in which tactics, and they give you the, you know, Mm. the Cooper, Heron, and Hewer definition Mm. from their Mm. textbook. 
But then you ask them, okay, great. So what does applied mean? Applied mm-hmm. means socially valid. Great. What does socially valid <laughs> mean? Okay. Wolf 1978 said socially valid went. So you know what I mean? You just have this kind of stream of conversations about what yep. it really meant. But what we really wanted to interrogate was, okay, if we are in applied science, if we take Bear, Wolf, and Risley 1968 and 87, mm. and we take conversations about what social validity means and what social invalidity means, mm. then what does it really mean to be applied? And this was also a time where everybody was really excited about social justice. This was like the topic of the hour. And we pushed back on that. And we pushed back on that in saying that if we are truly in applied science and the dedication is to improving quality of life for animals as well, we have applied animal behaviorists that are doing wonderful work, right? Mm -hmm. Human organisms, you know, non-human organisms, whatever it may be. If we really are dedicated to improving quality of life for whatever organism it is, then social justice is interwoven in that. Social justice is just this understanding that someone is experiencing some sort of injustice in their life and we want to improve their life. Well, that's Mm -hmm. what applied means. So we kind of, and this is probably an unpopular opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't need a new term in behavior analysis. We just don't. We, and we don't need a new camp of folks and we don't need a new championing. We need to really know what it means to be applied mm. and, and live that life the way it's supposed to be lived or the way we, we think it is because we're constantly learning. Who knows? Mm. So why do you think, why do you think that would put a bad taste in some people's mouth? Gosh, that's a good question. I think that I think that there's a little bit of confusion about what constitutes applied research in particular. Mm. And that's a definition issue. That's a semantics discussion. Yeah. I think a lot of the research that's published under the purview or under the title of applied may actually be translational research. Mm. I think it's probably just with human subjects mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or participants probably is, is a better way is, is how I prefer to talk about it. So human participants, but is the research question really applied in nature? Does it really have mm. anything to do with improvement of quality of life? The answer may be no. Is it with a human? Yes. Is it dedicated to improvement in quality of life? Probably not. I think that's the mm. biggest pushback right now. I would yeah. love if we had, we have the Journal of the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. We have the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, the Journal of Translational Behavior Analytic Research. That's not a very fun title, but you get where I'm going with that. I think we need another journal for translational literature in particular, mm. because I think it's being I think a lot of research is being called applied and a lot of interventions and a lot of clinical work is being called applied. And it's not because it's Mm. not, it's not benefiting the person's quality of life. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, You just kind of did a bit of a, a bit of a term switch there from subjects to participants. And um, I think I think a lot of that research, they were subjects. 
and not participants. Um, and I think some of that speaks to, you know, some of the stuff in certainly in the book chapter uh, around kind of kind of the, the the history of of research um, and and how we sort of you know looked at participants versus subjects, you know, and 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 subjects, you know, in my mind, uh, and I think, I mean, I'm I'm sort of speculating as to sort of why you prefer the term participants, but participants implies, you know. I think some some level of consent, you know, yeah. some some idea that I I know what this is about, I know what's going on with me, whereas you know, subject sounds like, you know, some something someone that I can do something to, you know, that I can manipulate, that I can you know uh, experiment with, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be as you know, you know as you know, sort of graphic as, although there are some examples of, of certainly, you know, horrific, you know, research. And I think that's where some of the Declaration of Human Rights came from, because I know a lot of the Nazi Germany research was definitely, and some of the in Indian residential school research. Um, there was some, there, there was some similar, there's some similar parallels there. There was, I know in Indian residential schools, they did things like um, starve children to sort of test, you know, those sorts of things. And then, and then there was some, um, and there was another, there was another experiment too. It was similar. It reminds me of um, a couple of the, what the example ones like the Tuskegee and the, and the, the hepatitis study and those where I think, I, I feel like there was some sort of disease kind of experimenting happened there. I think in, the, in those cases, you know, that's where, where those folks are considered subjects. Why do you think it's important to sort of know the history of research in 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 you know in general but also in in behavior analysis? Well, I don't I don't think it's important to just know history. My mentor is a historian and mm. I the one I spoke about that taught me what a professor was and mm. and taught me about what it meant to get a PhD and you know what I mean let me sit in his office hours asking all kinds of strange questions and as a mm. historian he didn't do the teaching of history the way high school baseball coaches did history in mm. high school which was memorization of facts yeah. and watching documentaries Although those things are very important when you're understanding history, what it doesn't offer is it doesn't typically offer a humane context and a human mm. context. And it also doesn't, in that way of teaching history that I was exposed to in high school, it doesn't offer students an opportunity to say, what was the historical context of the time? It, you know, if we talk behavior analytically, which is totally fine in this setting what were the contingencies that were operating in the larger social systems what was what were the cultural practices of the time how did they impact smaller groups and how were these types of behaviors reinforced at the individual level if you don't do that type of analysis and you don't do that in the context of history and points in time hmm. what gets missed is potentially a a two molecular look at why people do the things that they do hmm. And what history allows for students, especially the students that I teach at the University of Kansas currently, um, in 
in our ethics course, for example, we start with this history. We start with a human rights understanding of what's happened over the years. Mm. And we start with stories about Willowbrook State School. And we mm. start with stories about where uh, Sunland, Miami, um, you know, uh, horrificness is like literally the only word I have right now. But we start with the history and we start with the context so that we can understand where we're sitting right now and continue as scientists should be doing to say, is there something about our practices? Is there something about the questions we're asking? Is there something about the people that we're, that we're working with that could be improved? So we don't do what we did in the past, but we also don't and this is what's happening. This is the problem with this attempt to erase history, right? Mm. This attempt to whitewash, no pun intended, well, maybe pun intended, yeah. whitewash textbooks to say, well, let's really not talk about all of that. You take the human component out of it and you run the risk of doing making the same mistakes mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And I, I was telling my students the other day, because you can just see their faces, there's a, there's a sense of humility with students that are learning this information and a little bit of despair. And I promise them that things will get better as mm. we move forward, but we've got to start here and we've got mm -hmm. to understand the human aspect of what's happened. And the, the thought process I have is that if you remove the human aspect and you remove the human suffering aspect from your understanding of science, history, any discipline, then you're it, it's a, it's a, it's not a good foundation to start on. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. For sure. You talk about, I mean, the title of the, of the, the paper that was kind of based on your dissertation, mm. moving from colonial to participatory research practices. So I want to talk about the former for a little bit. Yeah. Um, um, decolonization. Is has become a real buzzword these days. I think for good reason. I mean, I, I, I think it's important um, thing for sure, but it's also a kind of a big vague word too. Um, um, you know, uh, there's the implication, and I'm not denying this, but there's sort of the implication that sort of everything, sort of, you know, from the moment sort of folks arrived on on the soil over here. Um, to now has been in some way colonized, you know, mm. there's, you know, everything is colonized. And I, you know, and I, I, I get it. I mean, I get sort of colonization is, is that's the, you know, that, that's what that is. You go and, and uh, you know, uh, take, take over the lands and, and uh, either, you know, remove the peoples or get the peoples to be to do what you want or think the way you think or, you know, assimilate or, you know, or, or a lot of these terms. And, and you know, that that's definitely a thing. And it's created and, and over, you know, tens and hundreds of years, you know, there's these these sorts of, you know, individual kind of behaviors and contingencies that you talk about sort of form into systems and structures that are you know, now, now don't even require sort of, you know, you know, um, you know, a particular, you know, 
a human to even look a certain way to be in place. I think we saw the, the you know the prime example recently with um, 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 uh, again around how the the police sort of system is very you know you know, is very biased and, 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 and it's not, doesn't matter if the police are, are, are black or white, it's the system. That's the problem. It's not the, 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 the individuals themselves. Um, so we, we see those kinds of separations. And so, you know, I get that we have all, it almost just seems like an untenable sort of, you know, um, uh, goal that we, we basically need to somehow, and maybe this isn't what we need to do, but it, 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 it sometimes implies, you know, without sort of giving more context and description that decolonization means we just need to sort of kind of start over again, you know, uh, from the beginning. Um, and, you know, and, and I think of, I think of the, the, the interview I did with um, Tiffany Hammond. Um, and she talks and she, you know, and she's a autism advocate. She talks a lot about, uh, autistic black black autistic woman mother of of an, an autistic child she talks a lot about um uh you know uh, she, she's she's deep into the sort of aba sort of abuse reform kind of argument and or discussion and she's you know she's she moves she says it's got nothing to do about whether aba is good or bad it's got to do with all the systems that aba grew out of in the first place uh yeah. you know back in the day like you know before even you know pre-skinner even you know and and sort of you know and that they were all built on these sort of colonized you know structures and systems that were in place and so we just we got to this place from that place um and so there was always sort of it's almost like colonization is like this uh this taint you know in the water that um is just always there and slowly kind of you know sometimes poisoning a fish or two and then someone eats that fish and then someone someone else eats that the thing that eats the fish and you know it just gets it gets everywhere and so um and then there's this move to decolonize this these just sound like really big big grand sort of super ideas that i think are important but i have no idea you know how to do them uh, or, and so i think first off you need to kind of at least focus on one sort of area and so that's what we're doing we're talking about our field behavior analysis we're not talking about the entire planet and the world and everything right at this moment um we want to move to from colonial to participatory research practices what do we mean by colonial research practices and behavior analysis what like what 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 does that what i know it's based on sort of a lot of this we won't go through all the examples of like willowbrook and all those things of of of, of sort of how science was so sketchy back in the day uh, but what makes sort of current kind of ABA research practices per se colonial? Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Whomhouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Whomhouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match, kind of like professional dating. 
For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is rights. R-I-G-H-T-S. Yeah, that's a good question. That is also a... That is a rabbit hole that I went down (laughs) and I had to be pulled back from, I went back to the university of North Texas to get my PhD with Dr. Shalalai Rosales, because I knew that she was going to be, she was the only mentor I wanted to work with. I really wasn't interested in getting a PhD at the time that I decided to go back to school just to get one. Mm. I had been in clinical work for a very long time and I was very interested in doing what you're supposed to do when you get a PhD, which is really um, become so ridiculously invested in a very particular area of whatever subject matter you're interested in. Mm -hmm. But then also trying to draw these lines of distinction, perhaps, and, and, and connections with other disciplines and pieces of the world a lot of times. And so... I was reading, I was sitting in my, uh, sitting in Shala's office and I was reading Steve Fawcett's paper published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis in 1991 about community-based participatory research Mm -hmm. and bringing that to bear to behavior, applied behavior analysis and research practices. Do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so- I'd read this paper over and over again. I got a little obsessed with it. It was, it was, I had, I had, I apologize to the trees that I wasted because I still have a need to learn with paper and pen. So I had printed off the article, highlighted it, written in the margins so much that I had torn the papers and (laughs) needed to recycle that version and printed it off again. And at one point in time, Dr. Fawcett mentions that persons that agree to participate in research should not become the silent subservient targets of research. And that was really powerful for me to read. Mm -hmm. And he specifically said the word colonial. We should not be engaging in colonial relationships Mm -hmm. with research participants. And Mm -hmm. he was the first to introduce in that paper the difference between subject and participant. And so these core critical pieces of information in that article really struck a lot of chords with me. Mm. And that started the colonial rabbit hole that I went down. Mm. From what I understand, I did the going back in, in the reference section and seeing who Dr. Fawcett had referenced. From what I understand, Dr. Fawcett was the first one in behavior analysis to use the word colonial in Hmm. this in this regard so he gets the credit for that i decided that we could expand not just colonial practices with regard to subject versus participant right not just with Hmm. regard to the subject but for the entire research process in particular so colonial research practices is really something that I came up with in our social justice lab as I was mulling over my dissertation and my research. Now, decolonialization is a completely different topic. And luckily, Dr. Cruz is on my dissertation committee and, and helped me in my lab and helped us in our lab understand that there's a difference between terminology. So there's 
colonialism, there's decolonization, mm. but then there's also another term in anthropology and sociology called decoloniality. Mm. And the more that I was talking about decolonization, because I, it, it's a very popular term and was a popular yes. term at the time I was writing, Dr. Cruz said, you're not talking about decolonization. Decolonization is the literal, um, uh, the literal transition of land, right? This settler, native, um, slave kind of triad of mm. colonization and has to do with physical land. And so there's a there's an article that's called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. So, and this is by Tuck and Yang. And so they talk about the fact that we shouldn't talking about decolonizing our schools or decolonizing colonizing methods hmm. or decolonizing science. That was one thing that I had seen. But instead, what we're talking about is we're talking about these systems that have to do with decoloniality and decoloniality being systems that govern a lot of different practices across societies that are steeped in this white Eurocentric way of being right and correct. Hmm. And science by being and the science of behavior analysis by being part of this overarching societal structure has these origins and these assumptions of what is what is mm. right what is research what is data mm. so those those were several several different rabbit holes that i went down mm. and several different conversations and a lot of drafts and a lot of rewriting to come up with okay what what does colonial research methods mean mm. Well, I mean, if we really want to be very, you know, just put it in a short sentence and put it in a nugget, the thought process is that like colonial, if you want to use a metaphor, like a colonial type of endeavor in history, mm -hmm. someone comes to someone's land, someone decides that they want to extract something from the land um, or the persons on the land or both. Uh, for their mm. own need, for their own good. They take whatever they extract from persons yes. and or the land, and then they use it to benefit and they commodify it for something else that they need and, you know, mm. ex exchanges for other things. And so, so that's, that's basically where we, where we landed on that is that we need to be careful about a research process that just capitalizes on a population sometimes a vulnerable population who may or may not really understand what the research is all about we extract information from them which is behavior data in the course in the in the purview of behavior analysis and then we use that behavior data to publish it to get tenure to you know mm -hmm. make, make journal publications and potentially make more money and write books and whatever it may be. And then when the research endeavor is over, we leave. We don't come back. We're not sure if it, if the person's any mm. better in the long run. So I'm oversimplifying this process, no, no, right? Yeah. And I am also very, very cognizant of saying I am part of this system as well. I am yes. not this outsider looking in saying this is not how to do research. My thought process is... How have we done research in the past? Are these, are there indicators of colonial research practices? And as Fawcett mentioned in 1991, what is a more participatory and what is a more community-based participatory approach to mm. research and hopefully shifting applied back to, um, not back to, but shifting the applied research towards research that is more socially valid, 
dedicated to improvement of human life throughout the onset and beyond research context. That makes more sense to me than I thought it would. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> um, it took a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. The, 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 uh, it answers my question, and but I'm, I just want to try to paraphrase in case it didn't answer my question for anyone else. Um, um, the, uh, what I'm hearing is is sort of the, the taking that sort of the idea of actual colonization. So coming, so but let's look at history and actually coming over. Um, I, I think I, th- I like the uh, I think the the slavery conversation is a little more complicated because you know they. Well, because humans were the commodity in that. In well, that. but that, but also because it started over there, over in Africa, you know, uh, you know, like it didn't start, it, slavery didn't start in, in, in North America. I think that's something that can, people sometimes kind of can, can think, you know, like it started over there and they brought them over to, to, to North America. Um, I, I know that's maybe a, a surface level way of looking at it, but I wanted to use sort of indigenous peoples as, 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 as a different example, as, as a, maybe a simpler example, because they were already here. Um, yes. And then, you know, colonizers just came over um, and, uh, and uh, basically said, you know, uh, this is the way we think the world should be. Uh, this is the way we think you should be. Uh, we're going to make these decisions based on essentially our, our biases. Um, um, and uh, you're either going to follow suit um, or or we're going to make you follow suit. Um, and that's going to be for the best of everybody and for the best of the world and so on and so forth. That You know, I think that's a very, you know, simple sort of description of what colonization essentially is. And we're, hey, we're going to take all your land, you know, away from you, of, of course, um, and make it ours. And it was never yours in the first place. You were just sort of bugs that were going to sweep off the sort of the table, as it were, um, and, and make it ours. And, and so I get where sort of decolonization, the term decolonization, because we in, in, in the indigenous conversations I've been having a lot and, and reading a lot here, uh, uh, there, uh, one of the big slogans is land back. Um, yes. And, uh, and, and there were in, and in working towards, you know, getting the land that we literally stole from these folks. Um, and so that makes sense to me that decolonization is, is returning the land because colonization is taking the land. Decolonization is returning the land. Um, it also makes sense to me just to take, use that as a metaphor. And uh, if this was your intention and, and apply it to, you know, uh, behavior and uh, analytic research and, um, or just research in general, um, in that usually right now, and, and again, I'm not a researcher, but as I understand it, sort of right now, the sort of typical way, you know, a research study comes into play, if it's not, if it's not a replication study, is, you know, somebody says, you know, I think this is important. Um, uh, um, and I think, you know, we need to look at this and we need to prove whether what I think is important is accurate or wrong or whatever. Um, but, you know, uh, I think we need to look at this group of people, uh, because there's a problem with this group of people, um, that we need to fix. Um, and, uh, and we can fix it by, you know, um, selecting this, this group this way. 
um, and, uh, you know, and applying, you know, interventions or whatever, um, um, you know, to these people in the way we think makes sense. Um, um, and, and then we'll decide if the results are useful or not, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's really us, it, it's really, a, it's a very controlling kind of way of looking at things. And it's a very biased way of looking at things. So if I'm, I have a bias that says, you know, um, you know, I have a bias based on ableism and say racism, we'll just use the two of them, um, that says, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, black autistic kids should, uh, you know, um, I don't know, do something, um, because I think that's just the way it is. Uh, because because my perspective is that they should do it like 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 we white non-autistic folks do it. Um, uh, then I asked the research, but, but the research question of itself isn't, doesn't come out. So, you know, blatantly racist, it's just sort of, you know, we need to teach Billy to use a knife and fork at dinner, you know, uh, but, you know, culture, but, but we don't take the cultural piece intact in that, that, you know, his family doesn't use forks, you know, um, um, they never did and they never will. Um, and we're, but we're going to teach them to use a fork because that's what we do. That's my bias. Um, and now I'm going to recruit a bunch of, um, folks, um, uh and uh and and teach them all to use forks and then in the end it's going to be a successful study because now i've got 30 kids that are you know using forks that didn't before um and it you know and that'll get published for sure because you know i i did everything right but that's a very that that has no meaning to the, to those kids that has no meaning to those families to those communities um that's all a, that, that was all a bias. It was a bias from the very beginning. And it's interesting that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Kristen Batama Butel's work. Uh, I, I might have brought her up in a previous conversation that I forgot to press record for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but but she's uh, she's a, a psychologist and a researcher. Um, and uh, I had her on the podcast, so it'll be coming out soon. And and she and her team uh essentially analyzed most aba research um and she wasn't looking specifically at colonialism but she was looking at sort of you know things like bias and conflict of interest um mm-hmm. and, and um and adverse and adverse effects reporting um and how most aba research doesn't have any of those things um in in the right way like we report we, we don't report bias we only report bias maybe if um, you know it, it's really obvious, uh, but because bias, so much bias is implicit, you know we don't report it. Um, and from her, from and I, 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 I won't, I won't spoil the podcast, but her research essentially suggests that most the most ABA research um, isn't really the outcomes aren't really valid because because of this essentially this colonial approach and 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 um and, and and not sort of reporting all these other other pieces that kind of led them to to come to these conclusions and also led them to you know do these studies in the first place um got I got to listen again ADHD is kicking in I got to listen to the episode again and and edit it and remember everything she said to to really be accurate with it but it just it just makes me think of you know everything we're doing you know 
comes from a, a place of bias when we do research. Um, and the way we recruit is, is often very, you know, sketchy. The way we, you know, accommodate for the needs of sort of, you know, and we do a lot of autism research. So the way we accommodate for the needs of autistic folks, whether it's sensory issues or whatnot, you know, we don't really deal with any of those things. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're very observable behavior only. So we don't consider, you know, often, you know, particularly in our, you know, in, in, in our clients that are maybe non-vocal, we don't consider private events because they're not talking about them, you know? Um, and there's a whole bunch of things that we just sort of don't do um, in research. And, and we really treat, we, we've really treated these folks like subjects um, and, 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 and not participants. Um, and so I think I was trying to paraphrase and then I just, and then I, and then I, and then I rabbit, and then I rabbit hole, but it's okay. Um, but you know, I think I think that's um, that's part of the reason I think for this for sort of faucet one to bring in this sort of participatory action approach. Yeah, Is it, yeah, yeah, totally. And I think you know, I and we we've, we've in previous podcast episodes that will never be heard because we <laughs> didn't we didn't remember to record our our previous conversations, we've disagreed about this, right? Mm. So I take for once in my life a more conservative standpoint about something. And the mm. something is that my more conservative and inductive approach to looking at data that I look at um, with regard to publication trends in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis mm. in particular is that I can't make these, I, I have, there's no way for us to know what the research context was that, mm. that was, there's no way for us to observe, measure, record over time. What we only have is we have the permanent product that is journal publications. Right. So I take a much more conservative approach to have applied researchers been doing applied behavior analytic research over the years and the purview is again, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis from 1968, um, in this case, for the first 50 years of the journal's existence, mm. I, I can't make sweeping for sure statements about what happened. It's mm. impossible. Mm. What I can say is I can say if all we wanted to know was whether or not the authors reported and published that they gained consent, informed consent, if all we want to know mm -hmm. is, did they mention any assent practices? Did they mm -hmm. mention the race of the person that mm -hmm. they served? Did they mention mm -hmm. the age? You know what I mean? Like, I can tell from a permanent product whether or not the journal article contained that information. Mm -hmm. What I can't do is I can't, not in an inductive way, mm. look at it and make these generalizations about the entire field of applied behavior analytic research practices right. as a whole. What we can do, however, is we can say that at bare minimum, when you, when you do your IRB process and when you set up a research and, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. project and you submit and on and on and on throughout these processes, we do know over time, these processes have changed. But as we stand today, we do know that you need to provide consent. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like there's, mm -hmm. there's certain things according to the Belmont report that says, Respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. This is our bare minimum. This is our bottom line, right? These are our core principles to working with 
human participants in biomedical and behavioral research. Mm. Everybody understands that, right? Mm. Um, so what we can do is we can say, well, where do we measure up to those bare minimums? Where do we mm-hmm. measure up to those core principles mm-hmm. that the institutional review boards abide by? And that is a better and more objective way of looking at our research practices as a field instead of wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will, if there's a, there's not a better metaphor that I can think of. And on top of everything else, and we talk about this in the research ethics chapter, we've come a long way, right? Mm -hmm. So Fuller was talking about this research subject that they had an an opportunity was provided to them to engage in this research and it was, you know, the first of its kind with regard to human operant research and groundbreaking in 1949. Right. Mm. And we're not saying Fuller is a bad person, right? You're just a a person operating in the contingencies and the Mm -hmm. context of your environment and science progresses. That's Mm -hmm. the nature of it. Mm-hmm. environments change we change with them and so the thought process is okay well if our bottom line is respect for persons beneficence and justice then how well are we doing with our measures and how well are we doing with the setup of the research endeavor that respects those principles mm-hmm. right and may and make sure that they withstand so you know we've had these conversations you and i've been and i'm so much more optimistic about people doing good in life right yeah. and i think that's the way that i need to live so that i don't go to that dark place when i was 16 years old realizing that humans do awful things to other humans that's a very terrible place to live in your head yeah. so perhaps it's a coping skill that i've learned over time to say and behavior analysis saved my worldview being a radical behavior has saved my life in so many respects, right? Mm. It helps me to under to have a science of human behavior, a science of behavior period to help me understand why people do the things that they do. It doesn't mm. make me less emotional when horrific things happen. Yeah. It doesn't take the humanness out of who I am, but it helps me ground myself and gives me a way to understand why people do the things they do and how do we shift contexts, including research contexts, to make sure that suffering doesn't continue to perpetuate. Mm. That That's something I can sleep with at night. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess we do disagree a little bit. So, um, <laughs> so which is fine. <laughs> but but I think I think you make a point that that I, that I, I I hadn't sort of considered, and and that's that. You know, there's nothing, and I think this is what Doctor Doctor Batemo Bittel's work is about. It's about not reporting things. Um, uh, not talking about things, and I think you talk about that. Not talking about asset, not talking about all these sorts of things, and and I think you're very. I think you're right. I think we. You're right. We have no way to know that they didn't do any of those things. We have no way to know if um, you know what you know you know unless unless you know unless you talk to the researcher themselves or you happen to be a lab assistant, you know, and you get a hold of them and you can you know get that information about that story about kind of where it came from, but right. so that's fair it, you know it you know alleged um <laughs> until proven in court sort of thing um uh, we also don't know if if the if the authors wrote that information and the journal said this is too much too many lines too many words mm, take it out we just uh, we just a, run under this fundamental really assumption you know back in the day you used to have to print these things this was yes. a lot of effort no um, i think yeah sorry go ahead 
Yeah. So, so again, you know, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know, but now we have better measures perhaps and better Mm -hmm. context and maybe another portion of it is accountability with each other and asking each other, what's going on in your lab? Like, how did you, where did, where did you come up with these research questions? Is this really an applied question? You know, those, those I think Mm -hmm. are more helpful for scientists to do with each other than pointing fingers and saying, you're being inhumane. Your lab is horrible. Mm -hmm. Stop Mm -hmm. doing this research. There's a lot of danger in that type of discourse. Although, (laughs) and I won't go too deep into this, but you did, you did sort of touch on it briefly. And so it gave me a little bit of an opening uh, where, where you talked about, um, uh, behavior analysis doing good things for all organisms yeah. um, and uh, and some of the animal research. And I'm still, you know, I'm still looking to do an episode on this. I need to find the right person to interview and have this conversation with. Uh, but I have a lot of struggles with animal research in experimental analysis of behavior. Mm. Um, uh, particularly you know, uh, you know, I can sort of live with maybe, you know, birds pecking for stuff and not even, I, I you know, I can't even, I can't even do well with that stuff because I, I struggle, I struggle with animals in captivity in general um, as a thing. But, you know, I definitely struggle with sort of, you know, the studies where, you know, um, um, they give them drugs or they, you know, they mess around with their brains and, and put electrodes on them and you know all that kind of crazy psychedelic stuff um like i think there's a lot i think it's interesting that we you know we have these applied fields that are there to do good things for organisms but then we have experimental areas that are actually exploiting organisms to meet their needs um um but i i i don't i don't want to take over the podcast topic on 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 that one because that's not what we're talking about today but it does, it does, um, I, I do struggle a bit with sort of the idea that, you know, we can have applied animal research that's doing good for animals, while at the same time we're, you know, um, storing rats and birds in cages for their entire lives and, and uh, and uh, you know, jabbing their brains with uh, electrodes and that sort of thing for the good of humans. Um, um, I don't remember know why. That, yeah, remember I that there. movie? Um, oh, no, just because <laughs> it, it's because we're not being exclusionary to organisms and we're talking about research yeah 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 remember that movie called fern gully did you ever see that movie i remember the title i don't remember seeing it so it's this movie about rainforests and it's for children but the Mm. story is about rainforests and cutting down rainforest and Mm. robin williams plays the character of a bat that's been experimented on and he's got a wire coming out of his head and Mm. um there's fairies, there's a man that gets a human that gets fairy size. So all of a sudden mm-hmm. his world gets turned upside down because he's seeing everything from a fairy's perspective. Mm-hmm. And not to trivialize your your point about animal research or just the treatment of organisms, period, mm-hmm. in many contexts. I don't want to trivialize that, but I remember watching that as a child and 
understanding all of that. And I, I think that's why I like hanging out with children so much because they seem to have more of an understanding of, oh yeah, this big dude was cutting down these trees and then he got shrunk down to the size of this fairy who depended on the trees for living Mm. and had a very spiritual relationship with the trees. There's elders in the story, although it's an animated cartoon, although it's old and outdated Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now, according to the animation that I see, which blows my mind. I just saw Avatar. But Avatar is another one of these animated movies that talks about these really important topics. And well now now I'm down a rabbit hole. But anyway, (laughs) it it reminded me what as you were talking about me as a child feeling Mm. very sad for his name was Batty. That was his character. And he was like, why did I had to ask my dad, like, why does he have this thing? It was very odd to me that this animal Mm -hmm. had this, you know, wire thing thing coming out of his head and he would short circuit and it was supposed to be funny. You know what I mean? And it was, it was hysterical as a child, but I think that that's a way for people. Sometimes people are able to write, Mm -hmm. make animation to kind of make sense of, strange things i love stand-up comedy and live music yeah which is living in the capital of texas austin is mm-hmm. that's what we do we do live do music and comedy shows and yeah. that's kind of one of the another thing that i use to cope but i don't think you're alone in this thought process of what are we doing and how we can do better? I think where I get really nervous, especially for our field, if I'm being completely mm-hmm. transparent, which I am always, which sometimes gets me in in bad positions, I'm very worried about behavior analysis right now as a field and this polarizing way in which people are setting up arguments or yeah. having discussions about very difficult topics. Like, mm-hmm. are you serious? You, you are you seriously think that you have it solved with how to solve racism yeah. as a problem? Because I'm pretty sure if you knew how to solve this problem, it wouldn't be a problem right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And 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 to for humans to pretend like they have all of the answers, myself yeah. included, I need to be checked often. And I and I surround myself with people who check me often. Mm. This is a very dangerous vibe right now Mm. in behavior analysis and you can see it happening in in conversations that you overhear at conferences you can see it happening in protesters for instance outside of our our abai conference in boston last Mm -hmm. year from the community about electric shock and then you Mm -hmm. can see it in position statements and voting and uh you know, behavior analysts having really insensitive conversations about race and racism on listservs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And it it is a very concerning time to be a behavior analyst for me because mm. I don't, again, I don't like, as as much as it doesn't seem like it, I do not like confrontation and I do not like really, really difficult, difficult conversations but I really don't like when power dynamics seem to shift left and right and everybody mm. seems to say that they are right and they are right. And it it really makes me uncomfortable. And I I don't know what to do with that discomfort except for sit with it at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really don't want listeners to think that 
well, I listened to this podcast and Dr. Malika Pritchett said, like, I am <laughs> just a human operating in this flesh thing that I, that I carry yep. around on my bones. And I'm just behaving in, in the same context or similar context based on my history of learning. Like it, no organism is better than the other. And, and these solutions are not easy solutions, but mm. I also know that if we're actually going to make any impactful change in our world and, and change some of these horrific things that have happened with any human organism that we're going to have to eventually work together. Like each individual person can't solve these types of problems. Um, but I'm, I'm today as we sit black history month, February, 2023, I'm very worried for these, the divisiveness and the divide in our field. And I, I don't know. I, I'm optimistic, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Is it, I don't know is, why I said all that, Ben. Is it surprising? No, it's really. Is it surprising, though, that there's a divide considering the divide there currently is in the world, you know, with sort of everything, you know? I mean. No, you know, no, no. You know, and, that, and that's, a, that's yeah. a really good point. That makes me feel a lot better, right? So the science of behavior analysis is just a another set of it's just another social environment that mm -hmm. is not it's not 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 influenced by contingencies and other systems and societies so yeah that's a good point i mean it's not to say either that sort of the people on you know on one side are are bad people and the people on the other side are good people either um but it uh there's just you know there's just so much there's so much polarization now in the country in in in, in both countries you know in canada a lot, a lot of what's happened in the u.s is happening in canada too more and more and it's getting scarier and scarier mm. um as far as sort of some of these opinions i think it canada just happens to have you know a, a few laws that we've had in place for quite a while that prevent some of the things from happening in the states that are happening from happening here but beyond that you know the, the the conversations are just are just as vitriol they just don't have the means to sort of you know hurt people as easily here as they do other places uh but but they're finding ways um for sure i don't know we just had a an incident of a school bus driver driving a bus into a daycare intentionally so you know oh my gosh you don't need you don't need gun laws to hurt people um so yeah um but anyway um yeah, no, and I, I think I think uh, I think part of it is, you know, I think the only thing we can do in our field, sort of, with this stuff, is um, is, is, is try to listen and 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 kind of keep having conversations, and um, and you know, at some point you got to kind of make the decision that you know, okay. I'm talking to a brick wall here. You know, there, there, there's there, there, there's nothing's going to change the mind of you know uh, a sort of you know these six people or whatever. And so, you know, don't worry about them. You know, those six mm -hmm. people aren't going to take over the field and and make all the decisions for us. There's you know, let's talk to the people that you know are interested. And I think there's a lot of people that just don't know, and they're all kind of stuck in the middle. And so, with that in mind, um, you know, I I don't want to take too much longer in, in this chat today, but I, I would like to talk a little bit about, you know, the positive side of, of this whole story. Um, um, and that's the moving too. So maybe because 
I think we could maybe just talk a little bit more about sort of what participatory research is, you know, and kind of and kind of what it what what it can look like. I think I think folks are our arguments against participatory research have never haven't been sort of that it's bad or or useless, but it but it's that it takes too much effort. Um, it takes too much time. Uh, you know, I had uh, Grant Bruno on the podcast, episode thirty-seven. He's a he's he's not a big analyst, but he's a indigenous guy, father of a autistic boy, and um, he's doing community participatory research with um, uh, in, in, uh, with uh, the indigenous community, and uh, he has no idea when at the time of the interview, which was last fall. He had no idea what his research was going to be on or what the research question was going to be or any of that stuff or who or, or where he was going to go. But he was in his PhD program and he was doing research. And, and how is that possible? Well, he was doing this thing called community participatory research, where the first step is going to, you know, the community, whatever that might be, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think for autism research, that's got to be the autism community, you know, for deaf research that's going to be a deaf community and so on you know and and for and he he wants to do research in the indigenous community and so the first thing he's doing is he's building relationships in in the indigenous community he's he's formed these kind of men's circles he's got a men's circle and and i'm and i i think i'm butchering a bit of this because some of the stuff is just stuff he's doing separate just within his community but he's got this sort of circle of uh, uh basically indigenous elders and indigenous community members um and and, and he calls it a circle a, a type i can't remember what type of circle he calls it but he's basically meeting with them on a regular basis to try to see sort of what areas do you folks need help with what areas do you folks need change in what 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 kinds of you know you know, research, do you, would you like to see happen that would benefit you and your community? And that is step, and, and I think, and I don't know what, I, I've never like read about participatory research and sort of, you know, the steps or whatnot, but that seems like that's sort of step one is, is but you know, before you, but you shouldn't, you don't even need to have a research question when you're doing your PhD because you shouldn't yeah. have one. You should be getting it from the community, um, and that's kind of where he's at. And I don't, even, I don't even think he's at the question yet. And this was, you know, it's been like six or eight months now. Um, yeah. Well, community-based based participatory research—that's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, community-based participatory research comes from an action research paradigm, mm. and action research has an underlying assumption that there's some sort of injustice that we need to take action on, hence the name, right? Mm. So that's why it's important also for scholars and and researchers to understand who informed and what informed this research methodology. So you can't have community-based participatory research without the understanding that there's some sort of population that we could probably consider a vulnerable population, and the issue that they need solved is probably some sort of injustice, some sort of Mm. disparity they're experiencing, Mm -hmm. something happening in their lived, local, real context. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that's the future of applied behavior analysis. I think that's where we're pushing, right? We're pushing more towards understanding people's voices, Mm. understanding, listening to -hmm. what people are saying that they're having difficulty with sitting. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was lucky enough to have an applied anthropologist on my dissertation committee to help me understand what all of this meant from a research methodology standpoint and sitting with information and, and understanding 
the origin of the research question. And the mm-hmm. origin of the research question, this is Beowulf and Wiz- Risley. This is not Malika Pritchett. So mm-hmm. I get to hand it off to, to those before me. But the origin of the research question should be organic and from the people, not from the researcher. Mm-hmm. I didn't, this is not my words. This is mm-hmm. Beowulf and Risley. Look mm-hmm. it up. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think we need to continue to do as applied behavior analyst that are conducting mm-hmm. research or that are digesting research is to start mm-hmm. asking those questions. Like where did this, where did this question come from? Mm-hmm. And if, if the origin of this question is from people, that's a really important line of research just by virtue of being how we intersect with people in society and how we bring the science mm-hmm. of behavior analysis into people's lives. And, and I think that's a cool thing. Like I yeah. love being a behavior analyst. I can't, I can't wait. And another thing that's happening that I think is really inspirational is podcasts like yours, talking to additional people, asking them about what they're doing and, and also the teaching, which is where I'm having the most fun in my life right now, the teaching of the next generation of behavior analysts. Mm -hmm. And I can see with my students in particular they're really thinking and they're thinking deeply and it is not easy. This is not an easy process, Mm. right? To think deeply and interrogate as you're learning the science of applied behavior analysis. But I see lots of programs changing their readings, changing how they introduce certain topics. Like we are Mm. still behavior analysts. We are still scientists. This is still a very powerful and promising science. We also are taking into account additional contingencies operating on our own behavior in the behavior of others and, and in continuing to hold that on down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And collaborations, not a bad word. And you can keep the internal validity of your experiment and still collaborate with participants in the community. Zigzag is an autism therapy management platform. At its core, Zigzag seamlessly allows management of programs, adding, editing, changing long-term and short-term objectives on the go. Zigzag makes data collection super easy for therapists on-site and automatically calculates progress, providing you with session summaries and graphs in real time. Zigzag provides you the ability to manage all of your clients, whether they be center or home-based, and work with all the various therapists and parents seamlessly. Zigzag is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is fully compliant with both federal and provincial privacy requirements. Book a demo now at www.zigzagkid.com forward slash product demo and get a free 30-day trial. The third secret word is invalidity, I-N-V-A-L-I-D-I-T-Y. Absolutely. And I think I've, I've talked quite a bit. We've talked quite a bit here and in, uh, in other in interviews about sort of that part. So we got to get the. Are there other things about participatory research practices beyond sort of, you know, getting your research question from the community? Like, are there other things that you know that that sort of are part of that? Yeah, and I really. Again, Steve Fawcett's paper in 1991 is a huge influence on how I frame community-based participatory research and my understanding with regard to um, behavior analysis. But another piece of it is um, at the outset of research, 
can the effects be maintained by the local community themselves, right? Mm. So you come in, you do great work. Can they sustain these wonderful changes after yes. the researcher leaves? Does their quality of life continue to be improved because of the researcher's presence? Um, did you teach skills related to empowerment? Did you teach skills related to self-advocacy, determination that ensure that people that agree to participate in research have their life improved don't still depend on the researcher for for continued life improvement so mm. there's there's a lot of different indicators that that Dr. Fawcett outlined in that article that i think are great indicators and great mm. questions to ask at the beginning of research throughout research and mm. and beyond which is which is really cool does the research um, take place in the natural setting. What's the setting? Do you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. So again, these are not boxes to check off in your research agenda. You know, are there community stakeholders involved? Yes or no? Check yes or no. Mm -hmm. Is 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 life improvement or empowerment a dependent variable? Yes or no? This is not a check off list, right? Mm -hmm. But it should be more of an organic and participatory process. And I think that that's that's cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is cool. And it does take time, like you were mentioning. Community-based participatory research sometimes means you're sitting there observing for a long time and listening mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's a community that you're an outsider of, that you mm -hmm. do not belong to. Anthropologists mm -hmm. um, are, are very good at, at that type of research endeavor, or research practice, rather. Yeah, one of my one of my supervisees is a he's got his undergrads in anthropology, and I've been learning so much from him. Uh, he just he always always applying that anthropology lens to things. I think it's I think it's a one of one of many things that might be missing from from some of our training for sure. Um, yeah, that's cool. So. Are are people doing this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I mean, goodness. I, I mean, I've I've seen a couple examples. Like I said, I found a couple folks on the podcast, but it doesn't seem as common. Like when I when I'm sort of reading, reading the research, and maybe is is that maybe because, like you said earlier, that maybe it's just the journals not wanting all that info. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, or I'm just not reading I, the right stuff. <laughs> it, well, this is not, I, I'm not in a position, I should say, to make a sweeping sure. statement about what folks are doing or not doing. Because even through your podcast, you're telling me about all these wonderful people. I'm like, I I had no idea what that person, who that person was and what right. they were doing, which is right. really, really um, indicative of us just needing to do this more often. Yeah. But anyway, um, that's one of the reasons why I am so incredibly stoked to be at the university of kansas because mm. i get to be at the birthplace of applied behavior analysis in particular continue my interrogation of what applied really means through mm. my research and teaching but then also to work alongside scholars who are doing applied research that is incredible and wonderful and meaningful mm. and um i spent the last year and a half working alongside Dr. Jamila Watson Thompson mm. and her research and her team's research is, and she was mentored by Dr. Steve Fawcett and 
the team continues to engage in community-based participatory research, specifically related to violence reduction, gun violence in particular, yes. and youth violence reduction. And that the future of behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis in particular, is this prevention direction, right? Mm-hmm. So we've, we've learned so much about what causes challenging behaviors and what causes people to be in distress and the environmental Mm. conditions under which now the future that I'm hopeful for and I'm excited about is how can we set up the environment to prevent these ills from happening in the first place? And what are the critical skills that we can teach that prevent suffering from in the first place? And so that is... I am very spoiled at the Department of Applied Behavior Science at the University of Kansas because I get to see this every day and I get to see what I'm knowing is the future of applied behavior analysis unfold through teaching students and having them teach me. So I'm, I'm so fortunate and yeah, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening, which is really cool. Mm. Yeah, I keep forgetting about all the cool stuff that's happening in Kansas. I think also it's, I think some of this stuff isn't always getting, because of the nature of the work, it isn't necessarily getting published in like JABA or whatever. It's getting published in kind of other journals often. Sure. And, Behavior and, and social issues is, deserves a considerable shout out for publishing some really critical research in this area. Um, but then sometimes like you're right, communication psychology sometimes gets some of this love from this line of research and um and journals like that so Mm. yeah i I think things are being published i think that it requires students and and researchers to broaden their horizons into other disciplines and work with other disciplines and that's that's how science progresses we learn what we don't know and we continue on and and the hope moving forward is that humans aren't collateral damage for the process. Right on. Yeah. In fact, the episode I released today, uh, you'll see it has the, the call for papers for the uh, behavior and social issues, uh, literacy and social justice thing that's coming out. And so that sounds pretty awesome. Well, Ben, will you, can I be your first repeat guest? Will you bring me back? hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Salt. Well, uh, in that vein, maybe the final question is, um, I know at Kansas, University of Kansas, you're probably initially just doing a lot of soaking in and, 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 and learning, sponging from sort of all these, these amazing, amazing, amazing people like Dr. Dr. Jamila there. Um, and so many more. Uh, but are you, do you have any sort of projects on the go or or starting or thinking about um, that, that, that we'll be able to talk about next time you come? Yeah. So I kind of invited myself back to your podcast so that I can set up in it. So, so you can be my accountability partner. Right. And the accountability is that my colleagues and I have been writing a paper about behavior analysis in public schools and mm. equity with regard to providing be- behavioral services in public school settings, mm. specifically talking using the framework of abolitionism and using that framework of abolitionism as a system altering change to ensure that black and brown students 
aren't disproportionately impacted by behavior modification, not modification, that's such an old term, Mm. but by behavior interventions in the sense of disproportionate impact of black and brown students bear on being suspended, um, sent to detention, expelled from school settings, Mm. and how behavior analysts working in public schools in the U.S., and we're also going to bring in conversations about the indigenous boarding schools in Canada, Mm. and how the school setting really is not this island of a setting that doesn't directly have to do with the contingencies operating in the broader parts of society and how behavior analysts can avoid being complicit in just writing behavior programs to reduce challenging behaviors that don't potentially perpetuate disparities in, in, um, in disciplinary standards in school settings. So that mm. is what I'm working on now. And it, as you can imagine, it is a lot of thinking and it takes, it's a, kind of an emotional labor along the way with that conceptual piece. But um, when I come back, I'd love to tell you that we're finished with the manuscript and we've sent it off to see if it'll be published or maybe when we talk again, it'll be published, yeah. but that's, that's the future. And that's, that's what cool. I'm working on right well, now. And my students are super excited about it. So I'd love to talk about that next time. I will hold you to it for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I need absolutely. Um, and uh, especially the, the, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of those boarding schools in the States too. So I do. Um, and, and a lot of those stories there and, None very hard, to, very hard to research and read about. Yes, well, it's 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 you know maybe we opened with a, a, ter- a territorial acknowledgement and a little bit of talk about the local First Nations here. We can close with that too. It's that's been the real struggle up here for those First Nations is that these, you know, there there you know there's been a lot of you know uh, uncovering of of you know these child graves all across Canada and in some places in in the states as well but the in the first nations are struggling to get you know records from these schools um, because it was the church that kept all those records and in fact that was the the uh, there was a uh, a group of sort of a what's the term I'm looking for um um Delegates, a group of indigenous delegates went to meet the Pope last year and, um, uh, and, uh, or he came here. I can't remember one of the, anyway, but a group of delegates met the Pope and, um, and, uh, and, and kind of we're, we're trying to ask some of these questions because the Vatican seems to hold a lot of these records um, uh, about sort of who these children were, who went to the school, the processes, you know, all that kind of paperwork. It's all been kind of being held and they've been really trying to fight to get that. So I have no doubt that you'll struggle to find, find information because the indigenous communities themselves can't get that information. So that's pretty wretched. It is. It is. And um, that. Yeah, that that requires that requires more than a land acknowledgement, right? Mm. Like that that kind of speaks to how you how we entered this conversation. Like that's one way to start. Just start moving the needle, a mm-hmm. tiny direction. The other end of it as as we close out is 
-hmm. we're talking about human lives, right? And we're talking about impact. So it's not about the intent of what we do as behavior analysts. A lot of times it's about the impact and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, we will do better. Yeah. Well, I, I feel bad for the folks that didn't get to hear our last conversation because this one was quite different than than the last one that we didn't yeah, press record that's true. for. There was a lot of things in here. There's a lot of things in my notes that I just even bother reading today that I that uh, I could have. Um, you know, I think last time when we talked, we talked a lot more about the, I think the, the actual history and the 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 text in those articles, but. Those are available by that research and ethics book, and um, and uh, you can you can learn all that history yourself. This was awesome, um, um, and yeah, you're definitely welcome back anytime you want. Um, and uh, yeah, super cool. Thanks yeah. for coming. Awesome, I'll be back, and thank you for having me again, Ben. It's been right awesome. On. Cool. <laughs>